0: Well, good morning, everyone. If we haven't met before, my name is Trey Jordan. I'm the worship pastor at our Southwood campus, and I want to welcome you to Grace. If you're new here to Grace, uh, we are especially grateful that you've joined us today to worship our God and to study His Word together. And if you've been with us this fall, you know that we are about halfway through our series studying the book of Romans, and we'll continue that in the next couple of weeks but in this season, because Texas A&M and Blinn are out of school, a lot of our families and students are traveling here and there throughout the holidays, this season of the year is a good opportunity for us to just pause on that series, to let our normal teaching pastors and those who are bringing the word from Romans to rest and recuperate and get ready for when we pick that back up in January. And this is also the time of year that Brian Fisher likes to call in the big guns, and so that's why I'm here today. <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Really, though, I'm really grateful to be here with you all this morning. I'm excited to open the Word together. And so if you would, if you have a Bible or an app on your phone or device, turn with me to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. When I was nearing the end of college, uh, I had several friends who were getting engaged, and they very graciously asked me to be in their wedding parties. It was really amazing. I really enjoyed it, having the chance to stand next to them on their wedding days and encourage them and support them in their new marriage. But unfortunately, in this day and age, being a part of someone's wedding party is much more involved than just standing next to them during the ceremony. Today, you're paying hundreds, hundreds of dollars to rent an Airbnb for the Bachelor party, you're paying for the groom's food, you're paying for a suit, for a tie, for shoes. You're driving to the wedding venue from the hotel that you rented the night before after going to the rehearsal dinner the night before. It's incredible. Really, really amazing, really amazing. Loved every second of it. Except when I was in college, I drove an older vehicle. I drove a truck with a lot of miles on it, and all of the traveling for all of the wedding festivities really put a lot of wear and tear on my vehicle. And I remember this one particular instance when we were at a rehearsal dinner. We just finished, and the bridal party thought that it would be a great idea to go out to dinner afterwards. Everyone thought it was a great idea. We were just outside of Houston. We were going to go further into Houston. And I remember very distinctly that night having some people hop in my truck with me and with my wife, Sarah, and we were on our way. And I remember driving on the 610 Loop trying to keep up with the pace of Houston traffic, and as I was accelerating, all of a sudden my gas pedal just didn't work anymore. I kept revving the engine, and what happened was the engine would rev up, but nothing would happen. And so, in my mind and in that moment, I thought, oh no, I think my transmission just went out. And so, in that moment on the 610 loop, I'm just trying to get off as fast as I can so I can roll over to the side of the road Stop and assess the situation. And by God's grace, I was able to do so really, really quickly. But then all of the questions started flooding into my mind. Question number one how are we going to get to dinner? I'm hungry. These people are hungry. We have got to go ASAP. Number two, if this is in fact my transmission, I don't have the money to pay for that. I'm still in college. I don't have that kind of capital laying around for me to fix that. And number three, I've got to get home somehow. We are in the middle of Houston, and I live in College Station. I've got to find a way home. And honestly, the stress of the situation really impeded my ability to think clearly and just call a tow truck in that moment. But I knew who I could call. I knew the person that would know exactly what to do, and that was my dad. However, I don't like to bother people, so I didn't want to bother him. It was kind of late at night. And also, he goes to bed pretty early, like 8.30, and so I didn't know if he'd be awake. And so I didn't want to take that chance, but I really had no other choice, no other option. So I call him up. He answers immediately. I explain the situation, and he says, okay, we're gonna call you a tow truck. We're gonna have it towed to this mechanic. If someone in the bridal party is coming back to College Station tonight, just ride with them, and if not, we'll get you a car. Sound good? I was like, yes, it sounds good. Thank you so much, Dad. I don't know what I'd do without you. And sure enough, I got home that night. I eventually fixed my truck, and we ate dinner that night, just as planned. Well, not just as planned, but you you get what I'm saying. I don't remember the details, but I know that that's what happened. And the reason I share this story with you today is that even though I was hesitant to call my dad that night because I didn't want to bother him, because I didn't know if he'd be awake... He was actually ready and willing to take my call that day. And in fact, even better, he was happy to meet my needs when I needed help. And just as my dad was happy to meet the needs of his kid when he needed help, our heavenly father wants to meet the needs of his children as well. Our heavenly father wants to meet the needs of his children as well. And our Heavenly Father has very graciously allowed us to bring our needs and our requests to Him through prayer, through the work of God the Son, Jesus Christ, that redeems us, and by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, we have direct access to the God who loves us, and we can always bring our needs and our requests to Him. But we're not good at doing that very often, very well, and I think there's a few reasons for that. I think, number one, we really underestimate our need for the Lord, right? Things are going okay. I mean, things aren't that bad. I'm not in crisis mode, and I didn't ask God for help before, so why would I need to keep asking Him afterwards? That's a potential problem. The second thing is, we just don't pray very much at all. Uh, Just a very quick Google search um, for top New Year's resolutions in 2024 for Christians yielded this article from a very influential Christian media company. This is what they say we need to do in 2024. One, in order, set goals for the year. Find a Bible reading plan, which by the way, we have like 11 more hours for you to finish those uh, before the new year. So, you're going to have to get on that after this service. Number three, do healthy things. Number four, manage your finances better. Number five, listen more. Number six, build meaningful relationships. Number seven, I really like this one, expand your horizons. Learn something new, read a new book, learn a new skill. Number eight, memorize scripture. That's a good one. And then number nine, become a praying person. It's number nine on the list, and this list even indicates that we aren't praying people already. We need to become a praying person after we do these other eight things. We don't pray. We're not a praying culture. Even the church And then the last reason that I think we don't bring our needs to the Lord is that we don't have a right view of God. I think if we had a right view of God, if we actually viewed him as our heavenly father who loves us and who wants to meet his children's needs, we would pray to him a lot more. And so that's why we're in Luke chapter 11 today. We're going to study verses 1 through 13 where Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. And the way that Luke is going to organize This passage in his gospel account is through three main sections. Through the argument, Luke is going to tell us that we should pray with dependence, with persistence, and assurance. So, let's read together verses 1 through 4. I'm going to have the verses on the screen as well for you to follow along. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he stopped, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. So, he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, may your name be honored. May your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And do not lead us into temptation. Now, first things first, we See this scene where Jesus is praying. And this isn't a very unique thing. All throughout the Gospels, we see examples of Jesus praying uh, in his ministry. And the disciples also would not be super unfamiliar with prayer. They would see the Jewish rabbis praying in the temple, they would see Jesus praying, they would see each other praying. But here's the deal, and here's the remarkable thing to me this is Jesus Christ, God the Son in human flesh. The same God, the Son, the second member of the Trinity who has spent eternity past in perfect communion with the Heavenly Father. And even still, in his ministry, Jesus recognizes the need for close and consistent intimacy with the Heavenly Father through prayer. And the disciples are drawn to this. Have you ever heard someone pray in such a way that makes you say, Wow, you really love the Lord and you know him well. I want to pray like that. That's exactly what's happening here. There was something different about the way that Jesus prayed. There was something different about it. And mind you, Jesus and the disciples were performing miracles. They were preaching about the coming kingdom of God, and yet they didn't ask Him for any help with preaching. They didn't ask Him for any help performing miracles, but they asked Him to teach them to pray. And so, Jesus says, okay, when you pray, say this. Father, okay? So, just to pause real quick, when we read that passage, a lot of you are probably thinking, hey, this sounds really familiar. It sounds a lot like the Lord's Prayer that I know from Matthew chapter 6, and that's because it is. It's just given in a slightly different context and a different account. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is preaching this publicly, and in Luke chapter 11, where we are today, Jesus is responding to a specific request, a specific request, and in that, he's giving us what's called a pattern prayer, a pattern prayer. This means that we don't have to say exactly these words, I don't believe, for it to be valid, but we need to be praying for these types of things, and these are the things that Jesus lays out with this pattern. We need to be praying for God's desires. We need to pray for our needs, for our forgiveness, and for our spiritual protection. So, this is what he says, When you pray, say, Father, may your name be honored, and may your kingdom come. Father, may your name be honored. These two phrases side by side are actually pretty unique, and the presence of the term Father gives us an indication that only God's children have the right or the ability to approach Him in prayer. And we know from studying Romans 8 earlier this semester that only those who have faith in Jesus Christ have the right to be called children of God. And so, in this passage, in this little word, in this phrase, we see that prayer is an exclusive right to people who are children of God. We have the right as His people to call Him Father. But at the same time, we recognize that while we have intimacy as a child has with his father— We also regard God as powerful and as holy. And as we pray these things together, we say, God, you are powerful. You are high above us all. You are the Almighty. But thank you for also bending low to call me your child. What a beautiful gift that is. Your kingdom come. The first thing we pray in this prayer is that everything else we're about to pray for, everything else we're about to pray for does not supersede the need for us to pray for God's will to be done earth. That's the filter that all of these things, all of these requests are going to be put through. Verse 3, give us each day our daily bread. This is where we start to ask the Lord to provide for us, and this is a statement that should show the disciples and us that we are to depend on the Lord daily for our needs and that God will meet them. Verse 4, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And do not lead us into temptation. When we ask for forgiveness in our prayers, we acknowledge that forgiveness is not just a given that we have, but it's something that we are called to continually seek. Not for the purpose of deciding whether we are in God's family or out, whether we're a child or not, saved or not saved, but rather picture this like you are a child and we're at the dinner table as a family. And you come to your parents and you confess sins because you want that relationship to be healthy. You don't want anything to come between you and your parents. So we're talking about intimacy that comes from confessing sin and asking God to forgive us daily. And in the same breath, if we receive forgiveness, we should also be ready to extend forgiveness to those Around us. If we reach up with one hand and ask for forgiveness from the Lord, we should be quick to extend the other outward and forgive those around us. And lastly, lead us not into temptation. Now, this isn't saying, God, I really hope you don't make me sin like you did yesterday. Yelled at my kids, that was your fault. That's not what we're saying. We're asking God to provide us the spiritual protection to keep us from falling into sin. This is what James says in chapter 1, verse 13 of his epistle. No one can say that God tempted me to sin because God cannot be tempted by sin, and he tempts no one. We're asking for protection as we live lives guided by God's Spirit. And the point of this prayer, the point of this dependent prayer, is that provision and protection come from God. Provision and protection come from God alone. There's nothing that we have, nothing that we do, that we can do for ourselves. God alone supplies us with these things. The problem is, we like to take matters into our own hands. It's easier to depend on our own strength. It's easier to feel like we can provide for ourselves. The nation of Israel is a great example of this. All throughout their history, we see that they don't trust the Lord. And I want to take us back for a moment to the book of Numbers, book of Numbers. If you remember where Numbers sits in the biblical narrative, God has freed the nation from Egyptian slavery, and they are in the wilderness about to walk into the land that was promised to Abraham in Genesis 12. But they complain and they grumble. They complain and they grumble against Moses and Aaron, the, the people that God appointed to lead the people in the desert. And so, God declares that because of your stubbornness because of your unwillingness to trust me and be grateful for what I've done for you you're going to wander in the desert for 40 years you're going to wander in the desert for 40 years before you enter into the promised land and nearing the end of that wandering period in numbers chapter 20 the nation is running out of water they don't know where they're, where they're going to get their next drink and so you know what's going to happen they're going to start complaining again and again. And so Moses and Aaron are going to go to the Lord and ask for help, to ask for counsel on what we should do next. This is what Numbers 20, verses 7 through 9 say. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, take the staff and assemble the community, you and Aaron, your brother, and then speak to the rock before their eyes. It will pour forth its water, and you will bring water out of the rock for them. And so, you will give the community and their beasts water to drink. So, Moses took the staff from before the Lord, just as he commanded him. Great start, easy enough, doing great, Moses. Next verses, then Moses and Aaron gathered the community together in front of the rock, and he said to them, listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock for you? Then Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff, and water came out abundantly. So, the community drank and their beasts drank too. Problem solved, right? We've got water. We got it from a rock, which is crazy. It happened. But here's the issue. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough to show me as holy before the Israelites, therefore you will not bring this community into the land I have given them. This seems like a big overreaction by God, right? Kind of a strange punishment that seems pretty harsh to us, but if we pay closer attention to the actions of Moses, we can, see, we can see two pretty big mistakes. The first is that Moses disobeyed a very clear command from the Lord, which was to speak to the rock and water would pour forth from it. But for some reason, presumably in his frustration, Moses banged his staff on the rock twice and water poured forth he directly disobeyed the Lord. And number two, it seems in this scene, Moses publicly takes credit for bringing the water out from the rock. He says, this is what we must do for you, grumbling nation. We must provide the water. And so, to do these things, to directly disobey the Lord and to take credit for what he's doing in a public sense is not something that God can tolerate. And so, the punishment actually does seem to fit the crime. Moses lacked trust in the Lord, and he took credit for what the Lord alone did. And this is what we do. We don't depend on the Lord for our daily needs. We try to provide for ourselves. And these are the kinds of things that happen. We don't get to experience the full blessing of God providing for our needs like He promises that He will. So, how do we get around that? It's just simply to depend on the Lord. Daily depend on the Lord for all of your needs, knowing that His way is better, knowing that we can trust Him, that He's faithful, He's provided for us in the past, and He will continue to do so. Now, Jesus is saying that our attitude in prayer with this content is supposed to be dependent, and our activity in prayer should be persistent. Let's continue reading in verse 5. Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine has stopped here while on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. Then he will reply from inside, Do not bother me. The door is already shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though the man inside will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet, because of the first man's sheer persistence, he will get up and give him whatever he needs. So, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. So, what Jesus is doing in this moment is he is transitioning into using a parable to continue teaching the disciples how to pray. And when we read parables, we have to consider just a few major things. There are a lot of small details that don't really matter, like the fact that there are three loaves of bread that are requested is not an important allegorical detail. We need to take note of just a couple of things. The first is that a parable is designed to present one spiritual truth alongside an everyday experience. In this case, the experience is a social one. A host has a traveler who has come to his house late at night, and he has no food to set before them. This is the setting in which we find our parable. And in ancient Near Eastern culture, a little bit of cultural context, every traveler had the right to a good host. Every traveler had the right to have good food set before them after their travels were completed. And so, our first character, our host, has a dilemma. They can go out and search for the food at midnight that was not readily available and hope to set something before his traveler, or he could turn the traveler away or just not put food out in front of him and almost certainly be shamed by the community for his lack of hospitality. So, that's the first thing. We have this social dilemma here. The second thing that we need to consider is that as we read a parable, we are meant to identify with one of the characters. Typically, there are three characters or character groups that are presented in a parable, and we are supposed to identify with one, or at least identify with the actions and the mindset of one. And so the characters that we have are, one, the traveler who appears at midnight, the host who has no food, and then three, the man inside who is sleeping with his family. A bit more cultural context, when the man inside says, I cannot get up and give you anything because my family is sleeping, the door is locked, and if I get up, they will wake up. What he is actually saying is, in my single room dwelling, my whole family is sleeping like right here, And if I get up and if you keep knocking, you're going to wake them up. And I really don't want that to happen. And so, the characters that we see here are the host who is empty-handed but runs right away for help to his friend. And then we have the man inside who is reluctant and begrudgingly answering the knocks at the door. Now, Jesus will Continue this parable. He'll kind of end it for us in verse 8, where he says, I tell you, even though the man inside will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of the first man's sheer persistence, he will get up and give him whatever he needs. This term, sheer persistence, takes on a bit of a double meaning. It means shameless boldness in the Greek. And the principle here is that there isn't anything that will stop a request from being heard. By God. Now, God is supposed to show up in the parable, but is God supposed to be represented by the man inside who is begrudgingly meeting the request and who is hesitant to get up? Not at all. What Jesus is doing is he is contrasting the character of God with the man inside. The man inside doesn't want to get up, he is inconvenienced by the request made by the host. But God, on the other hand, is ready, willing, and excited. To answer the door. And that's the application for us in verse 9. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Ask for your needs. Seek help, and you'll find it. Make your request. Knock on the door, and it will be opened. Now, this isn't a blank check kind of promise that means that we can ask God for whatever we want, and He will always meet our needs, but it's a promise that we will always be heard. And the point of this parable is that God rewards persistent prayer. God rewards persistent prayer. Uh, I really enjoy reading, and particularly I like reading books on leadership and organizational culture. And one of my favorites is a book called Making Ideas Happen. It's a book that documents certain habits of individuals and organizations that get a lot of stuff done. And there's a piece in here about a Procter & Gamble salesman named Jesse Rothstein. Jesse was incredibly successful. He had clients like Walmart, Costco, BJ's Wholesale, you name it, was incredibly successful as a salesman, but he wasn't particularly talented at sales. He wasn't very technical. He wasn't incredibly smart. He didn't have an MBA, But what his colleagues recognized and praised about him was his ability to follow up and get the information and the things that he needed to close a sale. He's interviewed in this book, and I'd love to read a few of his words to you in this moment. This is what he says, quote, I'm starting to believe that life is just about following up. There's this one guy that I was paired up with to lead a recruiting project. It wasn't his real job and it isn't mine, but it's something you do in a company to help out. It's corporate citizenship. The problem was that this guy didn't really care. I would send emails and a week would pass before a response. I would send drafts of a calendar for him to review and get no response. He obviously didn't care that much, but the project had to get done. At one point, more than a week passed without any feedback or collaboration. So I forwarded the original email again. Then two days later, I re forwarded the forwarded email. Then three days later, I printed the email out and I sent it FedEx overnight with my quick notation at the top. Just wanted to follow up. Jesse, he finally got back to me and he did quite a bit of the work himself. I think even corporate culture indicates to us that life follows the patterns of that parable. All of us come empty-handed, and we aren't supposed to have everything that we need. We aren't supposed to be the ones who provide it for ourselves. We just have to be ready to ask the people that can provide those things. The problem is that we underestimate the power of prayer. We underestimate the power of making an ask. This is what James indicates in chapter 4 of his letter. Verse 2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. You do not have Because you do not ask. It's a very simple verse. It doesn't need much more explanation, but this is the sentiment that James is talking about. Have you ever considered that our Heavenly Father is just waiting to do things for you that will bring Him glory, and all you have to do is ask, but you're not asking? Have you ever considered that that is His character? He wants to do those things and he just wants you to ask. He wants you to participate with him in this dynamic of him meeting your needs and bringing himself glory, providing for you daily. You do not have because you do not ask. Now, how do we get around this? How do we get better at asking? I think simply, we just have to start asking and keep asking. The principle in the parable is that God rewards persistent prayer. We keep knocking And we do this with boldness. We make bold asks, and this will help us be more persistent in our prayer. My wife and I have uh, two twin, uh, how do I say this? (laughs) We have twin two-and-a-half-year-old boys named Jack and Charlie. Um, Parenting has been really, really fun. Uh, It's also been really, really hard at times. My wife is an incredible mother, and I have struggled a lot to be Just a decent dad, honestly. Um, But one thing that I have instilled in our boys that I'm actually really proud of is, from a very young age, I've always encouraged them to ask for help. Anything they need help with, they should feel the freedom to ask, and they do. I'm really proud to say that they ask for help all the time with the smallest of things. They need to get up and down from the dinner table. If they need to park their little tykes' cars in the right place at the end of a day. Even this morning, one of my sons got one of his toy trains stuck in a bridge, and he said, I need help, I need help. And I was happy to go help him with that, and all of that's great. But what I really love about how they do this is when we partner together to bring about a solution, when my sons ask for help and I'm able to meet their needs, most of the time, They'll raise their hands and say, We did it. We did it. Which I think is an amazing example of how we should be persistent in our prayer. We should be excited to partner with the one who can help us and, in turn, say, I did it. I asked for help today. Give yourself some encouragement as you start asking and keep asking. Keep persisting in asking the Lord for help. This is the sentiment that Paul gives the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, says, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. doesn't mean you always have to be praying out of your mouth. You don't always have to be speaking prayers, but pray and don't give up. Keep asking for things that only the Lord can provide. Pray without ceasing. Pray with dependence. Pray with persistence. We can bother God over and over again and know that He will hear us. We can have assurance of this because He is our Heavenly Father and He's the perfect Father and gives us good gifts. Let's wrap up the passage in verse 11. What father among you, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then although you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? I've always thought this passage was very interesting for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's hilarious. Have you ever pictured this scene where your kid comes up to you and he asks for a fish and you whip out a snake from your pocket? Hope it doesn't bite you, buddy. Here you go. Or if they ask for an egg and you pull into your, you reach into your frocket and pull out a scorpion, say, "Hope it doesn't get you pal," go on your way," it's hilarious. And that would never happen. That would never happen. The second thing is, it's so easy to do the good thing that Jesus is describing here. And that's part of the point of his argument. He is arguing from the lesser to the greater, and that's evidenced by the phrase, "How much more?" If you who are evil are decent parents and you know how to give your kids what they need, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now, the presence of the Holy Spirit in this passage is very interesting. If we compare a similar account that Matthew gives in Matthew chapter 7, Matthew will end this discourse by saying, How much more will the Father give good gifts to those who ask Him? Luke says the Holy Spirit. Now, because of the nature of this passage, we're talking about making repeated requests to the Lord. And so, I don't think the Holy Spirit is here to represent salvation, right? We don't have to ask for salvation over and over again from the Holy Spirit to indwell us. But instead, what I think Jesus is indicating, what Luke is describing in this account, is that the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit is one of the best gifts that we could ever ask for. God's enduring presence to guide us, to teach us, to lead us daily, to keep us from temptation. I think that's what Luke is describing here by saying that the Holy Spirit is a good gift. And the point of this picture is that God helps his children. He doesn't harm them. We don't have to be afraid to bring our request to the Lord, and He'll answer with a harmful answer or a harmful gift. We should have assurance that He knows us as our Father, He loves us, He cares for us, and He's always going to give us the very best thing that we need. This is what David says in Psalm 37, verse 25. He says, I was once young, now I am old. I have never seen a godly man abandoned or his children forced to search for food. God is never going to leave his children out to dry. He's never going to cause them to search for food. He'll never leave them hungry. He will always provide what they need. And so what we need to do with this is ask for everything and trust God's answer. Because in reality, we're scared of the answers that God will give us. We're scared of the answers that God will give us. We'll start to justify our lack of bringing Him the things that we want with phrases like this, what I ask for isn't important in the grand scheme of things. There are a lot more serious things going on in the world. Why would I bring my little requests to the Lord? He's got way bigger things to worry about. Or worse, we don't want to venture into prosperity theology by Bringing everything we want to the Lord and hoping that He will just answer it and give it to us. Prosperity theology, in a nutshell, is taking God and making Him a genie that is supposed to grant us every wish when we ask Him, particularly with health, with wealth, and prosperity. We're scared of venturing into that. So it's almost as if we're trying to protect God from giving us answers that are harmful to us when we don't understand that we should have assurance that God knows us and He cares for us. And He would never do things that are harmful to us. He would never do things that are harmful to us. And so we need to ask for everything and just leave the answer up to the Lord. Now, you may be asking, okay, Trey, I'm down to ask for things, but what do I do if I don't get it? What do I do if I don't get what I'm asking for? Well, back to the parable, God always rewards persistent prayer. And those rewards may look different depending on the season and depending on the ask. The first thing we'll always get as a reward is intimacy with the Father. Jesus modeled this for us. Even when He's praying, even when He's moments away from His death on a cross, He is praying and He's saying, Father, please take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus didn't get the answer that He wanted in His life. But the intimacy and communion with the Father was a reward immediately in that moment. The second possibility, if we don't get what we want, is that it's not the right request. We're not asking for things that would honor the Lord, that would make His name known, that would make His name great. And so, God's not going to answer that with a yes. And we learn that over time. Praise be to God that He gives us the Holy Spirit, which we talked about in Romans 8, to pray for us with inward groanings that are greater than any one of us can fathom. We don't know how to pray, but God helps us to pray. And so we need to keep showing up and praying so that our interests and our desires become more aligned with His. And then finally, maybe we make a good request. that is in line with God's plan and with His character and with what He wants to accomplish. But it's just not the right time. God says, not yet. Keep asking, though. Keep asking. We need to ask for everything and trust God's answer. And ask big. I have a really, really great relationship with my father-in-law. There's a lot that I admire about him. His name is Jimmy. And from the time that I first met Jimmy, we would go out and he would do this one thing that I could never do myself and always gave me a lot of discomfort. We'd be out in public, and wherever he was, he would ask for discounts for everything. We're out to eat. Hey, can I get that employee discount? We're at a store. Can I get a cash deal? And I am not like that. Again, I mentioned I don't like to bother people. In the back of my mind, I'm just screaming. I'm like, oh, leave them alone. They're already working retail. They have it hard enough as it is. But you would be shocked to know that almost all of them say yes, (laughs) almost all of them say yes. They are happy to give my father-in-law the discount that he so boldly asks for, and I would bet he has saved $100,000 over his lifetime simply because he asked. It's like the verse in James, "You you do not have because you do not ask. Jimmy asks people. He asks, and it's amazing And I think that attitude is what we need to have when we bring our requests to the Lord. We need to ask for everything and trust God with the answer. I want to close today uh, by inviting the band up, and we're going to sing one last song together. And as we do so, uh, I have a couple things that I want you to take a look at. They're very similar to what you may have filled out earlier in the service, but it's a prayer card. And we've been doing this at Southwood for... I don't know, about the last year or so. And it's become one of my favorite rhythms on a Sunday morning. We get to read these requests as a staff and as a prayer team and bear one another's burdens, taking them to the Lord. And what's amazing is I have this card right here, and um, it's, a, it's a nameless prayer request for salvation for five friends. Very simple please save these five people, Lord. These other cards that I have are essentially the exact same request from the same person, same handwriting, same names. And I only brought three up on stage today, but I have seen this specific prayer request for pretty much the whole time we've been doing this as a campus. For almost a year, I have seen this card put in the basket every single day week. These are the things that God wants to see. We depend on the Lord to provide salvation for our friends, for our loved ones. We persist because we know that God rewards that. We ask over and over again. We ask boldly, knowing that God will hear our prayers. And finally, we can have assurance that God will hear us and listen to us because he loves us and he cares for us. So what I want to close with, I want to ask a question to all of you in the room. That is, what's one thing that you are hesitant to ask God for today? What's one thing that you have been uh, holding or withholding from the Lord because you're scared of how he'll answer? I want to challenge you in the quietness of this moment as the band comes up and gets ready to lead us in one last song. Bring that request to the Lord. Ask big and trust God with the answer. But ask in faith. Be persistent, be dependent. Have assurance that the Lord will hear you today. and Hear you this year as you become a praying person. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you invite us to call you Father. We are so grateful that by your grace, you have redeemed us and you have adopted us into your family as your children. Lord, I pray as we move into 2024 that we would become a praying people. Not just because we're supposed to, it's what we're supposed to do as Christians, but because we want to be in communion with you. We want to have closeness with you that you have offered us. God, we want to see you do great things that bring your name glory and set you apart clearly from everyone else. Lord. Every powerful person, every powerful organization, every kingdom, every domain of rule on earth pales in comparison to your power and your majesty. And we want our prayers to be answered so that the world would know that and they would call on the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved and give you glory as a result. And so we ask all these things in the name of Jesus, according to your will and by the power of your Holy Spirit.